track one repeats. Can you hear me? Over. Hello, I'm Mark Rosmanis. Thank you for downloading the Track One podcast. Uh, this is an Easter special. Uh, we'll be talking about a story in which uh, a leader who founded a movement but was then turned upon by his followers and killed uh, is then resurrected. So you've probably guessed it's Destiny of the Daleks. Uh, my co-host is Lawrence Sutcliffe. Welcome back. Hi, Mark. Thank you for having me. No problem. Thank you. Thank you for taking the time to join me. Um, so. Destiny of the Daleks, it was released last weekend on vinyl for, for Record Store Day, um, so it was a good opportunity to talk about it. Um, were you much of a record collector at all? Uh, no, I, since I got back into Doctor Who, I've tried to keep myself relatively pure, because when I, when I was really into it as a teenager, I had a lot of stuff, I and mean, it really was anyth- anything related to Doctor Who I got. Um, nowadays, I just tend to keep it to the episodes and a couple of the series guides. Mm-hmm. Um, my preferred one being uh, About Time, yeah. which is just about to have, I think it's his eighth volume is coming out next week, which will cover some of the, uh, the David Tennant, uh, the latter part of that era. Yeah. Um, I've been tempted, I think back in the day, the, the only record that I think was available. Well, no, there were two. There was the, the BBC Doctor Who Special Effects album, yeah. uh, which I had, and uh, Doctor Who and the Pescatons, especially written um, one for Tom Baker and uh, Elizabeth Slayton, mm-hmm. uh, which I remember quite enjoying. But uh, but no, with the new stuff, um, I haven't bothered. I have got the CDs of the missing stories, mm. uh, but. Uh, no, it's just it would be something else. Yeah, although they do look very pretty uh, with their sort of their coloured vinyl. Uh, they've done in Destiny in a uh, sort of red vinyl, I believe, and yeah. Galaxy Four, which came out in a green one. Yeah, they are the, the so, artwork and everything's really really beautiful on them as well. Uh, and of course, they also did the um, Genesis of the Daleks record as well, which I think was recorded around the time that Destiny of the Daleks was was made, and it was kind of a bit of cross-promotion, I think, yes. uh, re- reinforce the idea of Davros and remind people about that as well. Yeah, because it had been a couple of years between the stories. Um, so I was watching, in preparation for this, I went back to sort of re-watch them. And I'd forgotten that there are sometimes some quite big gaps in the Doctor Who chronology between the Dalek stories. Mm. Um, probably, I think, most most notably was when for a while, Terry Nation wouldn't let the BBC use them because yeah. um, he was trying to launch the series in America that would be just about the Daleks. So there's five or six years um, between <clears throat> the Evil of the Daleks and Day of the Daleks. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, obviously, with Tom Baker's long run, there's must be, what, four years between, four or five years, again, between Genesis and Destiny. Uh, so it must have been quite a big thing to to have the Daleks, the Dalek stories again after so long. Yeah, and I guess for kids, it's that 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 does seem like a lot longer. Like four years now is like the blink of an eye, isn't it? But when you're a kid, it seems like ages. So it'd be kind of a, a dim, yeah. a distant memory, or something that all the kids would just have told you about and said, "Oh, there's the Daleks, and they're amazing." And uh, so yeah, it, yeah. I guess it'd have been a big deal. And it, it was your first story that you ever saw, Destiny of the Daleks. It was. 
I was, I was trying to work out when I saw it, because I don't think I saw it on the original broadcast, which was in 79, but the story was repeated the following year, and I think that's probably when I saw it, because I, the next story I remember watching is Keeper of Charkin, and from then on it goes all the way through. Yeah. So I think I probably saw the repeat rather than the original broadcast, because I think it would have... I think I would have stuck with it, and I've got no memories of seeing any of City of Death or or any of the rest of that season, or even the early part of um, of the last Tom Baker one. Um, so I think more likely I caught that, and I pretty much I've got very vivid memories of episodes two and three, um, and the the shot when. Davros is coming back to life and his hand starts twitching mm-hmm. sort of on, the, on his control panel. That that was really sort of stuck in my memory. Um, so so I can tell you sort of pretty much exactly where I was at a, in a half-hour slot some 40-odd uh, some years ago now. Um, but I don't know what it was. It, it And I don't know why I particularly started watching it Um so I don't have older siblings, so it wasn't that they were watching it and I sort of tagged along with them. Yeah. I think it was probably just just on, and, and it, it caught my attention. And uh, and from then on, I was a bit of sort of it was a regular fixture in my viewing. What sort of other things would you have been watching around that time? Was that sort of within your taste of? That was probably the most grown up thing I was watching. I would only have been about well, if I saw the repeat, I'd have been nearly seven. Mm-hmm. So I was still watching sort of quite quite kids programs. That that would have felt a very grown up thing mm. uh, to be seeing. Uh, I was aware of grown up television because my parents used to watch things. It must do things they watched. I think coincided with probably my bedtime. So I do remember them watching um, Blake Seven and. Uh, a little bit later on, they were sort of fans of things like Tenko and Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, uh, the the BBC adaptation of Day of the Triffids. Uh, it's mainly the theme music I remember rather than the shows, which is probably because I was being sent to bed um, at yeah. the time they were beginning. Um, so, so I don't know if perhaps that um, my dad, maybe my mum, sort of put it on as something that I might enjoy, um, or it's just something I found myself. Yeah. Because uh, I, I, for me, I'm always confused about why my parents didn't point me in the direction of Doctor Who, because I, I already had like a predilection for science fiction. I really liked Star Wars, um, yeah. Superman movies, uh, you know, kind of Terror Hawks and stuff like that, and then, then the more kind of like the yeah. kids' TV. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't know why they never thought... Here's something you would obviously like, and it was um, everyone at school was talking about it when Remembrance of the Daleks was on. So I tuned in yeah. for the next story, which is The Happiness Patrol, and uh, and, and that was hooked immediately. Um, so, yeah, uh, I, I, I don't know. It would have been an obvious thing. I was only about eight at the time, I suppose. And I guess it was probably not long after maybe a lot of negative publicity about the violence and stuff in the Colin Baker years, which maybe uh, maybe put them off. Uh, introducing uh, that to me or something, but uh, yeah, it was, it was sort of especially when it wasn't available on, on VHS and things. I was oh no, I missed all those stories I could have seen when I was younger. Uh, if they'd uh, put put it in front of me sooner, yeah, yeah. But uh, yeah, 
Yeah, Destiny of the Daleks, I think I didn't see until the VHS release. Um, it was one I'd, I'd somehow missed on, on UK gold repeats and, and things like that. So I remember being really excited when it was coming out, going to buy the VHS. Um, but mainly because I wanted to see Romana's regeneration, because I knew that that was the story where we got the change in Romana, but I think I was fully expecting to see Mary Tam and then and then uh, change in, straight into Lala Ward. But obviously yeah, it doesn't happen get, like get that, does it? Get a regeneration sequence. Uh, yeah. It's a very odd one, uh, isn't it? Yeah, it's 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 a strange little sort of beginning to that. I mean, obviously Mary Tam had decided she didn't want to stay as Romana, and I think it did leave them in a bit of a a jam as to how can we replace her so quickly. Mm-hmm. But I think Lala Ward does very well, um, and sort of dropping into that probably helped by the fact that she had recently been in uh, it's Androids of Tara, isn't it? Armageddon Factor. The Armageddon Factor. It's yeah. Armageddon Factor. I don't know why I always confuse those two. Um, the Androids of Tower has got the Mary Tam double, hasn't it? Ah, uh, uh, that's so probably why. The other, yeah. the, the other that's, so it's that Prisoner of Zender with yeah. robots story. Um, but yeah, I think she she sort of steps into it very well. I think there's mm-hmm. there's an obvious chemistry between her and Tom Baker, which isn't necessarily there, I think, with Mary Tam. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, she has, Mary Tam in, in later years said that she probably wasn't easy to work with that because she felt she was a bit above it because she'd sort of come from doing feature films to doing sort of a, a kid's TV show mm-hmm. um, and maybe didn't take it as seriously at the time as she should have done. Um, but, uh, but it's a really nice little sequence it does feel a little bit watching it back again for this does feel a little bit of a a, sort of a padded thing a bit of filler to yeah. maybe stretch the episode out by having her come in with with various other sort of guises mm-hmm. um, so i think there's there's three um sort of other bodies that yeah. she's uh, sort of trying out before they settle on uh, on the Princess Astra look. Um, yeah, it's, it's an odd one, isn't it? It made me think, thinking about it, made me think, it's only really when Doctor Who came back with the new series that, that regeneration is like a, a fixed thing. There's a fixed way of it happening where any other Time Lords, where you see the uh, the Master regenerate in Utopia or you see the uh, the General in... Um, uh, it's uh, Hellbent, so, isn't it? Uh, Hellbent. or Hellbent where it's always the golden energy. Um, but it's a bit more sort of nebulous and, and esoteric almost in the old series, isn't it? Because you've got the, the planet of the spiders, you've got um, uh, Campo and Choji, um, which is unlike any of the Doctor's regenerations, apart from a little, being a little bit like the Watcher in Log- Logopolis. And the effects are always different. And it's, uh, you know, the, the Master has run out of regenerations, but he can... He can sort of body snatch at that point and, and still take on new forms. It's not, uh, it's it's quite different in the old. It's something that Time Lords can do, but it's it's never the same way twice almost, is it? No, uh, I think really the the most similar to to what we have now is probably the first one, the Trouton, the Hartnell to Trouton one, where yeah. the screen wipes out. Although sort of famously, it does also include regenerating his clothes in that yeah. one. <laughs> But I think for in the classic series, it was such a big moment for them to switch over the Doctor. Everybody 
wanted to make the regeneration sequence special. There wasn't a thought of necessarily having it as this is the way it happens. Mm. Um, and also, of course, technical limitations of the time. Yeah. Um, I think uh, on the uh, – I can't know whether it's Legopolis or Castrovalva, probably Legopolis, but um, talking about that it takes nearly a day to do that sequence where sort of mixing between Tom Baker's Doctor, The Watcher, I can't remember who the actor is in that, and, and Peter Davidson, mm. and all have them having to lie very still and the cameras tracking over them and things like that. Yeah. It's uh, yeah. I think they so the first time they use any kind of computer if, effects with them is the uh, is the Sylvester McCoy sort of introduction where yeah. where he's where the Rani sort of pulls his body over and it's sort of meant to be Colin Baker. But obviously, he wouldn't go back for it. Yeah. Um, and you've got that. Um, like a swirling sort of, sort of, yeah. Yeah, the holographic. Mm. Um, fractured light thing going on as his face changes yeah I suppose it's a fairly unique regeneration as well in that it's, it's not brought on by an injury or kind of any kind of fatal accident it just seems to be entirely a choice that uh, she's using you know, one of her regenerations just to uh, just because she's bored or, or wants to change it so it's, uh, it's slightly odd like that and, uh, and I guess shows because the, the, uh, there's a bit of a theme, isn't it, with the Doctor and Romana, that Romana is a more accomplished Time Lord with kind of better exam results and, uh, and and more sort of technical knowledge, although she doesn't have the experience of the Doctor, yeah. that it's totally random when the Doctor regenerates, but she can, with pinpoint accuracy, uh, replicate um, the, uh, the, the the features and the form of another being. Yeah, it has been, I think, hinted at a bit in the, in the new series. I was thinking about... Because obviously you, you kind of go, well, how many regenerations is she using up by, yeah. by coming through with these different bodies? Yeah. But then they almost retro explain that with Christmas Invasion for David Tennant, um, that he has a, a, a window of flexibility in the thing, which is when he regenerates the hand. Yeah, um, You get the impression that if something wasn't right, he could yeah. um, potentially re, reinvigorate himself yeah, um, a in a different form. Yeah, and you wonder if um, Russell T. Davis, being the massive fan that he was as well, whether he had Romana in mind <laughs> uh, when he yeah. was sort of suggesting that malleability um, after it. Um, I suppose the other thing is uh, in terms of the ability to choose your face, I mean, although it seems to be more subconscious with the Peter Capaldi regeneration, that it was uh, a message to himself that uh, you know about saving people because he'd saved the character in uh, the... Oh, what's it called? The name of the episode's gone out of my head. The uh, uh, Fires of Pompeii. Fires of Pompeii. That because uh, he'd saved that one family, then that by by taking on that face, it was a reminder to uh, that he could save people in the future. Uh, yeah, and actually, it's never. They never make any comment in the show. I don't know if any of the other sort of extended universe things do. It's the fact that Colin Baker's Doctor has the face of Maxwell, yeah. the guard that shoots him in... Um, the Ark of in, Infinity, uh, yeah. Oh, it's the Omega... Yeah, Ark of Infinity. Omega story. Yeah, yeah. That's it, yeah. Because yeah. um, I do wonder when he goes back to... Um, back to Gallifrey in the extended material, it is the kind of thing where you... 
you can imagine a writer popping in a little scene where uh, where he maybe meets Maxwell again, yeah. and there's comments about the fact that he's got that face. Yeah, or even as a way of infiltrating uh, the, the capital or something like that, you could put on the uh, the, the headgear and the uniform, um, yeah. and wander around as as Maxwell. And they, uh, yeah, I don't I don't think Big Finish have done that, but it's uh, it does seem like a a great opportunity for a story there, doesn't it? Yeah. Uh, uh, so, but yes, it's it's an interesting start. But uh, to say to, it does feel a bit of padding to have sort of the doctor. I mean, it does serve a function. It explains why that scene, why canine's not going to be in the story. Yeah. Um, which gets them around the whole problem of canine being notoriously difficult to move about on anything other than the smoothest of services. Um, and it adds in a little bit of comedy and a nice introduction to, for the character uh, of, of Romana too. But it does mean that you're sort of nearly 10 minutes into the story before they before the story begins yeah. as such. I think part of the K-9 thing as well was apparently Terry Nation wasn't keen on K-9 because saw him as a rival to the Daleks in terms of, I guess, uh, toys and popularity and the uh, the affections of children. Yeah. Uh, so he, he wasn't keen to have K-9 in it either. Uh, yeah, he must have been spitting feathers when, uh, <laughs> when K-9 and company got made and there hadn't been a Dalek spin-off at yeah. that stage. <laughs> Mind you, they could get two feature films out of it. So. Yeah, that's true, yeah. He's... Uh... Because uh, I think that's the uh, they say that the, kind of the only two people that have really become wealthy from working on Doctor Who are um, uh, Bob Baker and um, I forgot the other chap's name, the Bristol Boys. Uh, uh, oh dear! Uh, the Bristol Boys, anyway, for, for, for yeah. inventing K and I and Terry Nation for inventing the Daleks. The only two people to make any money from <laughs> from working on Doctor Who. Yes. Uh, so yeah, the uh, they land back on the planet Scarrow. Uh, been the first time for a bit. The thing that I really noticed this time was when they're out on the surface of Scarrow, there's that wind effect, uh, which I thought was really really effective. Uh, it kind of adds an air of menace uh, and, and makes it seem a little bit sort of alien and, and different as well. It's not. There's no sense that it's yeah. a safe place when they've landed, is it? No, it's it's a nice uh, it's a nice opening. It's one of my favourite quarries. That they they use because it's not the normal sort of sand pit one, although that appears later. Yeah. Um, this proper stone quarry, so it's got all these interesting sort of holes and um, and little ruins of buildings around it, which I think they mm. use to great effect. Which once you know that we're on the Scaro and it is sort of centuries beyond. Genesis and, and mm. the devastation of that. I'm never quite sure whether it's centuries or millennium. Because it's is it after the original sort of Dalek story, or is that somewhere else on on the planet? Because I always assumed that the Dalek city grew up upon the ruins of the Khaled city. Yeah, and um, um, so. I'm wondering if this is even even later because sort of the Thals aren't really around and things like that. Have they moved on and, and abandoned Scaro now? Um, so it's a little, as with all sort of classic series continuity, it's a little bit difficult to think. So sort of where does this fit? Yeah. 
always best, I think, just to figure it in with the doctor's chronology and let them let them drop little hints that are sort of more enjoyable than answering any questions in these shows. Yeah, it's very difficult to square with the original Dalek story, isn't it? But uh, I guess you can sort of, uh, you know, kind of explain that a little bit because uh, the Time Lords are interfering with history and genesis of the Daleks by dropping the Doctor and Harry and Sarah in there. Um, yeah. And for some people, that's the opening salvo of the Time War. So you don't, I guess, know how many times... Dalek history has been rewritten at that point, and uh, uh, yeah, because or, or is it something they did which led to the war? I do think there's a slight hint. I was I was watching the um, the the some of the extras on the DVD last night, and unfortunately there isn't an actual making of for Destiny of the Daleks. And no. then there's a a long discussion about Terry Nation's involvement with the show and then an interview with the director. Mm. And I forget who it is points this out. I think it's the director, Ken Greaves, saying that there's a tendency in Destiny to have forgotten that there is an organic component to the Daleks. Um, and even the Daleks themselves sort of, um, behave in a more robotic way. They're trying to refine the organic element. So it made me think, is that as a result of the Doctor's things? It's never quite, or to my mind, it's never satisfactorily answered, has he done what the Time Lords asked of him in Genesis? Yeah. Um, Yeah, I know that you get the scene where the Dalek rolls over the exposed wires and the explosives do go off, Mm. but has that changed the Daleks in any way? Um, Or has it? sort of merely confirmed the path that they're on. Uh, it's that problem when, when you involve time travel. It's like, are the people who are involved in it, who travelled back in time, are they causative? Or are they sort of just simply confirming what's going to happen, that they have to go back to make things happen? Yeah. Uh, so as Doctor Who has I its think- cake and eats it in that sense, doesn't it? Because you've got the fixed points in time where you say, well, it has to be this way. But then there's other points yeah. in time which are in a state of flux and it does matter what they do and what, what, what the decisions so, um, what, what decisions they make. So, uh, yeah, Doctor Who's never really come down on either side, has it? <laughs> just depending on which story they're telling, uh, they can they yeah. it either way. Yeah. I think the thing about the, the, the Daleks being purely robotic in this it's interesting because I'd always thought that, you know, it's kind of received wisdom is, oh, Terry Nation seems to have forgotten that they had an organic element. But it is said twice in the episode, oh, they used to have an organic um, component. You know, the Doctor finds the, uh, the sort of remains of one of the mutants, doesn't he? And, uh, uh, and sort of looks at it and then scops it against the, uh, into the quarry. <laughs> Uh, unceremoniously and then right at the end as well he says um, yeah you know they, they used to be organic so it seems like it's a de- deliberate choice on Terry Nation's part that they've they've evolved away from that um, yeah but I think, and I think the way just, that they're presented the way the stories are told has has sort of moved that way a bit but yeah. it's a nice it's, it's quite a nice thing then to given that they have encased themselves in this I think you could say that there's a way of looking at the story about do you lose your, for want of a better word, humanity or your your Carl Edness 
by isolating yourself within a box and adding more and more technology so that in the end the organic components become nothing more than almost sort of wires and transistors and that but organic versions of that um i think there is a way of looking at the garlics like that and certainly that's in a way that they look at themselves and why mm. they feel they need Davros, that they need to go back to, to in some ways, a less pure version of themselves mm. to add in something of, of their, what the Daleks would probably see as sort of a primitive version, but, a, but it, it has benefits of a cunning and, and a deviousness which a machine can't can't match, hence their sort of stalemate with the Mavellans and become over-reliant on a a robotic uh, interaction with the world. Um, It's it's an interesting idea about how can can two robots go to war and the idea of their battle computers simulating things for so long that actually they they can't decide when to strike mm-hmm. because they're automatically looking at what the countermeasures are um, before they do anything. Um, so I do, th- I do think it's a very interesting idea. Reminds me a lot of um, the end of the movie war game mm-hmm. when the computers made to play tic-tac-toe against itself, not to crosses. And it realizes that, they automatically enter the stalemate. So then it goes on to a bigger thing, simulating all the different sort of thermonuclear war options and re- comes to a realisation that it can only lead to mutual destruction um, and therefore nobody can win and therefore it's don't design to win. Hmm. The best, the only way to win is not to fight. Um, so I think there's, there's certainly... Not that they go into it that deeply, but there's certainly very interesting bits in it. Yeah, I suppose the Destiny of Alex version of that is instead of tic-tac-toe, it's paper, scissors, stone, isn't it? But but tic-tac-toe is a, is a better example because that should inevitably lead to a draw every time if, if nobody makes a mistake, whereas um, paper, scissors, stone is entirely random. Uh, and it's just yeah. odd that the Mavellans um, constantly... Um, pull out the same ones. I think they just do it in order, aren't they? Of paper, scissors, stone each time. Um, yeah. And it's not really clear how the doctor's able to beat them because <laughs> unless he's just realised that they're working in a sequence and always knows what's coming next. Uh, so yeah, maybe it would have been less televisual, but but uh, nuts and crosses or tic tac toe would probably have illustrated the point a bit better. Yeah. Um, but yes, I think I think it's a purely visual thing there, and there is a there's a. Mm. A channel I follow on YouTube called Number File, where they talk about a lot about maths and various mathematical problems or properties. So I find it very interesting. But they had one a while back uh, that was about rock, paper, scissors. And it was about there is a mathematical way of improving your chances to, to win at that, um, which I found was quite interesting. So it's not it's not a wholly... Uh, unsuitable sort of test to put to robots, um, but it's, it's a nice thing. It reminded me uh, a little bit of a sequence from the previous uh, season with Stones of Blood, with the Magra, the um, 
uh, the, the, the space the, lawyers. Yeah. The, the spheres and, yeah. and the, the, the little court case. Um, and they, they do quite like, I think, certainly in the Tom Baker era, to to have him make robots not necessarily look a bit foolish, but to explode, expose the flaw in them. Um, he does that another Carrie Nation story in um, uh, Android Invasion. Uh, just another one of sort of spotting how the limitations of androids yeah. um, and, and, and recognising how being sort of strictly adherent to logic can be a weakness as well as a strength. And there's a scene with the ship's computer in Shada, isn't it? Which obviously around this time, it's, it's Douglas Adams, a script editor, where he fools the, the, the ship's computer into uh, allying itself with the Doctor instead of Skagra. Um, yeah. So uh, he's able to... And there is, I, mean, it's, I think it's a pretty regular feature of, of Douglas Adams' writing. Yeah. But uh, there's a, a healthy scepticism if not an outright suspicion of, of machines and computers yeah. um, and, and anything which removes the being from from the, mm. the equation too much. So, yeah. And that's obviously something they touch upon, thinking about Douglas Adams being the script editor at this season. Um, there's quite a few sort of references to Derry Nation's having got a bit bored with his script writing duties for Doctor Who and, and sometimes turning in sort of not much more than outlines yeah. uh, and things like that. I mean, I think that's sometimes a bit overplayed over from what people like Terry, Terry Sticks and Barry Letts say about working mm. with him. Um, but it does seem that Destiny had, a, had quite a lot of rewriting done on it by Douglas Adams. Yeah, according to the complete history, um, he, he left a number of gaps as well, deliberately so, because uh, so that it was Douglas Adams that wrote the regeneration scene for Romana. Um, he, he sort of um, so that whole opening sort of ten minutes is all Douglas Adams, I think, because he just sort of left a gap for that and, and to and to write K nine out and, and bits and pieces like that. Uh, but uh, yeah, and according to the, um, I think it was. Uh, maybe it was on the documentary you mentioned with Ken Grieve where he said that uh, it was he and Douglas Adams um, and Graham Williams that sort of worked out the resolution to the story as well because it wasn't really, uh, it either sort of came as a bit of an outline or, or wasn't fully resolved. Uh, yeah, so because he said part one was written, part two was sort of pretty much there and parts three and four were there in just sketch outline of, as to what it would be. Um, yeah. Because uh, this is Terry Nation's final Doctor Who script as well, isn't it? Um, so having uh, been involved right from the start or virtually from the beginning, uh, this is his, his last contribution to the series. Uh, and it's 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 odd to have, I think, Terry Nation's style alongside Douglas Adams. Terry Nation tends to go for quite kind of gritty, <coughs> quite quite kind of gritty scenes. So um, you've got the scene where the the I think the Daleks are trying to get the Doctor to. Uh, yeah, the, the doctor's got Davros hostage, basically, hasn't he? Uh, and they start yeah. shooting the prisoners, which it never normally gets that far in Doctor Who. Does it even just the threat of shooting prisoners and the doctor will capitulate or seem to capitulate to the villains? Uh, but here, yeah, they're, they're getting shot down in front of him. Um, 
which is which is quite with that sort of hard edged Terry Nation stuff, uh, but alongside Douglas Adams kind of quips and uh, witticism things, uh, they they're not sort of natural bedfellows, are they? No, um, I think when you when you look at the uh, at the previous Terry Nation stories, um, and not just the Dalek ones, Keith Marinus and uh, um, Android Invasion as well, the, there is a harder edge to them. Mm. Um, and I think that comes that they talk a lot in, or Terrence Sticks and Barry Let's do about sort of him, Terry Nation, and a lot of the early Doctor Who writers having grown up in a post war. Britain and, and that having a great influence on their stuff, particularly they they mention it in relation to um, Dalek Invasion of Earth, mm. uh, which is really when when I was surprised when I got around to seeing the TV version because I'd seen the movie one for very many years. That was the one you got to see. The TV version one is is really quite dark, mm. um, and and. And, and a bit unpleasant. There's, there's, I think having um, Bernard Cribbins character in the movie gives it a slightly lighter touch, adds a bit of comedy to it, which is definitely not there in the TV version. Yeah. Uh, there's a preoccupation, so, preoccupation with radiation as well, isn't there, in a lot of, uh, especially the Dalek stories. Um, which yeah, is, although which that is, gets forgotten in Destiny. Sort of where they're yeah. sort of they're taking their radiation pills, yeah. and they're not anymore. Yeah, uh, yeah, that's true. Yeah, that was obviously the part one that he fully fleshed out. He put he put that in, um, and you've yeah. got like this sort of um, the, the the Daleks use and other races as slaves, which is uh, you often see in Terranation stories and things like Planet of the Daleks. And uh, I suppose the only thing you haven't got is some kind of creature. Um, you haven't got like the the slither. Or the giant clams or anything here, have you? That um, it's probably one of the other hallmarks of a Terran nation. Uh, although in Death to the yeah. Daleks, you've got those um, the, the roots of the city that come out and attack people. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and the, the Spiridons in Planet of the Daleks. Yeah. Things like that. Well, and then just the general nasty jungle, which wants to sort of attack everything. Yeah. Uh, yeah, they, they do. Again, it's I think Terence Sticks from his experience as a script editor talking about Terry Nation does like to sort of recycle sort of bits once he gets a bit that he likes. Yeah. Um, so you get I think the Robo Man drowning himself in Dalek Invasion is recreated with the malfunctioning Android in Android Invasion mm. throwing himself off the cliff um, and little bits and pieces like that. Yeah. So. Uh, and I suppose the other sort of Terry Nation thing. Um, while we're talking about that, is is the TARDIS being trapped under the rubble? I suppose it's got a dual purpose of, of keeping K9 out of the action, um, but it, it feels like a, a bit of a throwback to the William Hartnell stories, where they weren't necessarily the heroes that had arrived to to save people uh, from the Daleks or whatever. They were just embroiled in something and trying to escape back to the TARDIS, and you had to have some reason why they couldn't easily get back to the TARDIS. Um, yeah, and the uh, the great bit here is they can get in the TARDIS until right at the end when those rocks are revealed to be incredibly light because <laughs> the Doctor <laughs> can just easily pick them up uh, and throw them away and so and Romana can move them quite easily as well so, yeah I always thought that um, the door the 
the door to the TARDIS opens inwards as well. Yeah. So actually, <laughs> locking it shouldn't always sort of lock you out. Yeah, yeah, um, that's true. <laughs> but yeah, I think it, it can be difficult because sometimes with the TARDIS, you do need to be able to make it unavailable to them. Yeah. Um, and, and you're quite right. I mean, uh, obviously, there's the the faulty fluid link, which then gets stolen in the original story. There's the the debris that falls and blocks the door in uh, Dalek Invasion. Mm. I think the chase is probably the only one where he doesn't have a, a moment where the, the TARDIS is inaccessible because yeah. it, it is a chase sort of story and they need the uh, they need the TARDIS for it. Mm. Uh, at the start of my, my um, clumsy comparisons between uh, Davros and Jesus. Um, <laughs> um, Davros is resurrected here, but played by David Goodison instead of Michael Wisher. Yeah, I think is there not a thing that there is no? It's never the same actor twice for Davros in all his classic series appearances. I think Terry Malloy. Um, I think I'm right. In I know he played him a couple of times. I think he it might be him in right. the three 1980s stories. Um, uh, I might be wrong about that. Resurrection, revelation, and remembrance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. the three R's. Yeah, I think that might be him. I, yeah. um, I was at a convention a few years ago that had David Goodison and Terry Malloy there, um, right. and I got a picture sitting in between them, uh, and they're both kind of pulling these kind of monster faces, and uh, uh, it's quite cool. So uh, if I can wrap that out, I'll, I might um, put it in the show notes. I'll, uh, I'll have a look at that. So, it's yeah. the voice which I, I notice most... That is different. Yeah, um, he's, he's wearing the Michael the, the mask that was made for Michael Wisher, and it's it is looking a little tired. Um, yeah, but, in the like, complete history, they talk about how the the Davros mask um, had been on display at the Blackpool Doctor Who exhibition uh, for the last sort of four years. There wasn't the budget to make a new one, so they just sort of patched it up as best they could and, and, and put it on David Goodison. Um, and it apparently was in such bad shape that the cleaner came in one night and saw it lying somewhere and just thought, just thought it was rubbish, so she threw it in the bin. Uh, so, uh, yeah, it was obviously in, in not in the, a good state of repair at, at that stage. Uh, um, but, yeah, I think David Goodison, he, um, uh, he, he was saying at the convention he was cast because he's mainly known as a voice actor and he, he voiced, voiced some of the Daleks in this story as well. Um, he doesn't kind of reach the same pitch, does he, as, as Michael Wisher, maybe Terry Malloy later on, of when, when he screams and kind of yeah. rants and stuff. I, th- I think he has a deeper voice, which yeah. doesn't lend itself to that. Um, I think as, as in Genesis, the, the scenes between the Doctor and Davros just talking it, are very effective. They work very well. Mm. But yeah, for the, for the sort of the hysteria, the over-the-top sort of screaming, which I think Davros is meant to sort of represent mm. sort of the, like a Goebbels, Himmler kind of figure. Um, more so than Jesus, I think, yeah. Yes, yes, <laughs> more so than Jesus. <laughs> um, I think that's where it doesn't, work that's where this i think his voice which is very nice it lets him down a bit you do want a more high a higher pitch mm. to that um but overall i think it works well it's 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 the that genesis of the two stories where i i quite like davros after those i think they 
the Dalek stories became much more about Davros than the Daleks. Yeah. Um, there's an interesting, I mean, uh, is, it, is it Resurrection is the Peter David's one, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that is in many ways a, a direct sort of sequel to to Destiny because it is transporting Davros after he's been captured at the end of Destiny. But for me, there was too much focus on it. That's why I think in, in the new series, I was a bit relieved that he didn't immediately come back. Yeah. Um, and, it, and it was more significant when he did. There was a, a, too much of an over-reliance uh, on, on him. And it, and it weakened, I think, the Daleks because mm. um, it, it made them overly reliant on him rather than a threat in their own right. Um, for me, I think this is the last time in the classic series where the Daleks have some of their malevolence, which they certainly do have in in the earlier years' stories before Davros is introduced as a character. Um, but I think he's an interesting one. I, I like that he exists. I mean, it's, it's, it's a good sort of explanation for, for how the Daleks have come to be um, and then sort of following it. Um, I, like, I do like the, the slightly fractious relationship he has with them as well, um, which is something which gets lost in the, in the later classic stories. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, the, there's the split, isn't there, after where you've got the Imperial Daleks and the Rebel Daleks in, in sort of res, uh, Revelation of the Daleks and Remnants of the Daleks. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. And that calling back to um, Evil of the Daleks, the, the Pat Troughton yeah. uh, story. It yeah, sort of has those, those two factions again. But again, it's, it's that risk of trying to impose a continuity on... Uh, on the outside of the Doctor's continuity. Yeah. I remember having a, one of the books I had was uh, the David Banks sort of complete history of the Cybermen. Yeah. Um, oh, that goes through some tortuous <laughs> twists and turns to try and keep everything in continuity. Mm. Um, yeah, the new series has really simplified that, hasn't it, just by saying, well, there's, there's different separate origins for Cybermen across the universe. They're not... It's not one uh, tribe of Cybermen that, uh, that that are constantly evolving and changing, which is I think it's more satisfying that, isn't it? The uh, the new series explanation yeah. for that, yeah. Uh, and I guess that's why with the Daleks, because you've got the Cybermen who run supposedly on pure cold logic. Um, they abandoned the idea after this of the Daleks just being robots who can only handle logic, didn't they? Because you don't you don't need both races like that. Um, the, the, no. the Daleks can be a bit different and, and be more sort of fueled by hate and just, just have negative emotions rather than have no emotions. Um, yes. Because the interesting thing in this one, um, when the Doctor says he'll blow himself and Davros up, is the Daleks say, well, no, you won't, because that would be illogical. That kind of self-sacrifice is illogical. They can't even conceive of that. Um, but then by the end of the episode, Davros has uh, obviously stolen the idea to some extent and, and sends them off to blow themselves up to destroy uh, the Mavellan ship. Uh, so it's this yeah, idea that he and the Doctor I, are the, these opposites that can, can think along those lines. Yeah, I mean, in some ways, there's an interesting thing is that 
the Doctor and the Mavella, the Doctor and Davros become replacements just as equally matched in many ways as the battle computers for the Daleks and the Mavellans. Uh, they haven't really, for me, I, I, neither of them seems to have really gained an advantage, mm. probably because they don't know how sort of to use those resources. Yes, they recognise that they need an organic, um, unpredictable element mm. to, to move forward in their battles. But at the same time, do they, as creatures that are very logical and robotic, do they have the wherewithal to use those things in the right way? Mm. Um, it's, it's a slight weakness in the story for me that, that both of them would be willing to give up a lot to Davros and for the balance of the Doctor when they realise that he could fulfil that function for them. Mm. Um, they, it, it's not quite for me in keeping with the cast, particularly for the Mavellans. I mean, the, the Daleks, you could argue, somewhere buried within that there is that organic component still. Um, it's just they don't really know how to use it and access it, so they need help with that. Mm. Um, but for the Mavellans, who are purely robots, can, can they give up that control to, to someone in some ways that feels like a, a defeat, even though it's not to the Daleks to, to get to that position. Uh, I, I did enjoy it, um, the, the, the small Mavellan uh, cameo uh, at the beginning of the last Peter Capaldi season. Yeah, um, the pilot, yeah. Yes, that was it. It was a nice touch, um, wasn't it, I, yeah. Yeah, now one of those ones, a, a classic monster match, I do think you could bring back mm-hmm. for a story uh, without um, too much difficulty. Uh, it's certainly a lot unexplored when them, isn't there? We, we never find out who created them or why they were made to look uh, like they do with the uh, the silver yeah. wings and stuff like that. Um, obviously, kind of the... Um, the idea is that kind of very attractive, isn't it? And, and that kind of very beautiful looking humanoids. Uh, so it'd be interesting to, to delve into that a little bit, uh, where they did originally yeah. come from. Because there's even a suggestion in this story, when the Doctor and Romana see the ship, that Romana surmises that it must have time travel capability as well. Uh, so you could bring them into a sort of a time war um, kind of uh, story or, or kind of offshoot, I guess, um, if, if they're time travellers. Um, I suppose they, to, to be in a war with the Daleks, it'd have to be time travellers as well because the Daleks have had time travels from like their fourth story, haven't they, with the chase? Yeah. Uh, so third story, um, sorry, third story. I mean, in some ways, I mean, the, the Mavellans could even be a, a logical sort of end phase of Cybermen. Yeah. And, and things like that. Um, yeah, or are different. Yeah, branch of them because all that really are is, is it's a being that's replaced all its organic parts with with mechanized parts, and therefore once all the orga- organic stuff is gone, they, they lose an, an essential component of humanity. Which mm. you could argue maybe that's what happened to the Mavellans. Uh, yeah, 
and that would be why they all look different if they they still have an original template of the humanoid that they originally were um yeah generations through generations of upgrades and replacements yeah uh it's a little yeah. bit disappointing with them um their weakness being that someone can just pluck the power pack off their belt um and then really sort of power down isn't it it's um and then they can even be reprogrammed quite easily yeah it's a little bit like the um the subcurrent with their their sort of red so I mean at least they're yeah. on the back so they always have to face their enemy but you would think yeah. well just put a little cover over it yeah <laughs> just like a like a sports cap bottle sort of thing or something like that that, that, that flips up and yeah. down yeah <laughs> yeah I do, like nice. I, do, I do think the production designer for that story, though, was maybe a Boney M fan. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I do like, I like the fight that Romana has with, um, is it Commander Sharel? Um, at the end, when the, when the fighting over the detonator, and um, Romana just kicks his arm clean off. <laughs> it's, um, it's, yes, they're not very sturdy robots. No. <laughs> They're probably slightly more sturdy than the uh, the Centauran robot in the Centauran experiment, um, but not by much. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> At least that looks flimsy. Yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, uh, but yeah, it's, it's a good story. And I quite like the I quite like all the the human sort of all the humanoid characters that you get. Sort of that have been the Daleks have had. Digging their uh, doing doing their excavations for them. Yeah, there's, there's a uh, few recognizable labor force. a few recognizable costumes in there as well, isn't there? One of them is wearing a draconian outfit, um, and I think he's one of them wearing like a mentiad outfit or something like that as well. There's, um, I might be wrong Could about be, that. Yeah, there's, there's there's quite a few that you can uh, you can spot in there. Um, and yeah, it's uh, going through the wardrobe and saying, "What what can we give people that's about to wear out?" Yeah. <laughs> um, and then um, Tisan, who's the, uh, the I guess the main the main one of the uh, the, the slaves, uh, I was reading this in the Complete History. He's played by uh, a guy called Tim Barlow. Uh, he says he was profoundly deaf uh, from testing rifles in the army. Um, but um, was uh, still could act. He could lip read uh, and ran a school for deaf actors. Yeah, uh, so, that. yeah you wouldn't. Um, I mean, obviously, you'd never know any of that from from the episode. But um, yeah, kind of a, a really striking looking um, actor as well. Yes, yes, very. Um, in, in a nice way, somebody who looks like he could be alien without any makeup. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. But he's playing the human, isn't he? He's um, he's all the others. Also, suggesting some of the others are aliens, but but he's uh, he's human. Uh, so yeah, maybe. Yes. <laughs> uh, but there's quite a few um, quite a few actors in this episode. Um, uh, Tony Osoba plays one of the Mavellans, who probably more well known as uh, McLaren from Porridge, the the Glaswegian inmate and uh, David Yip as one of the other slaves working in the mines I think it's a year or two before he really became very well known in his own right as um, as the Chinese detective right. uh, in the BBC drama um, so I think it is quite a quite a packed 
sort of sort of cast. There's, there's a lot of extras in it as well. Yeah. Um, so for that, and obviously a lot of sort of people out operating the Daleks. It's it's a it's a busy episode. For, for one, but in some ways, when I think back about it, I think about it as, as lots of quarry running and caves and not many people about. Mm. Uh, I, I was just going to say about uh, thinking about it, the quarry, I was, uh, it does make me smile when you get to see the, the vacuum form Daleks that they have to make up the numbers that are being just sort of carried around yeah. by people. <laughs> Uh, but it's very obvious that there's somebody walking because of the way they, they bounce yeah. up there slightly. <laughs> It's like the Flintstones car or something, isn't it? Yeah, where the feet out the bottom and they've, uh, they just walk along because it's easy and laying all the planks of wood to, to run the Daleks along. Yeah, and that was what they blew up, I yeah. think, when because um, I really like the scene where the, the Davos has got his hand over the detonator for when the Daleks arrive at the um, at the Mavellan ship, and then by sort of forcing his hand up and then releasing it, Davros's hand smacks down on the the detonator. All these Daleks blow up, and they're they're just sort of, um, like you say, vacuum formed molds, and um, all blow up. And, and by all accounts, they the problem was that when they were waiting to, to film these explosions, they kept blowing away and blowing over. Uh, they were so <laughs> insubstantial. Yeah, and it's the other bit where the, the Daleks sound a little bit thick, isn't it? Because as they uh, as they're moving along towards the Mavellan ship, they they're constantly reminding each other what their mission is and that they must not deviate. <laughs> Um, it's uh, yeah. I mean, I guess they're just trying to make the scene look more interesting by not just having them, uh, you know, kind of a troop of Daleks moving along. But uh, it's uh, yeah, <laughs> kind of giving the game away to anybody that's listening as well what they're up to. Yeah, the um, it's interesting to hear Ken Grieve talk about the the problems of directing the Daleks out in a quarry as well, saying that sort of. You all you have to keep shooting them from low angles because they have anything else. Either shows the fact that they're a vacuum form one that's being carried, and you can see people's feet, or it shows the running sort of tracks of them, uh, of the ones that do have people inside them sort of propelling them. Mm-hmm. Um, so, it's, but it then also does look quite dynamic, sort of shooting them from a low angle. Um, there's some nice shots when. Um, when the doctor's hiding from them and they're sort of just a bit above him uh, on that. I think it makes an interesting comparison with um, Death to the Daleks, mm-hmm. which is sort of the same thing, but doing, doing quarry in a studio um, rather, rather than actually out on location. Yeah. Um, I know there is some location work in Death, in Death to the Daleks, but a lot of it is recreating sort of bits for uh, for the studio. The other sort of behind-the-scenes thing with this uh, story is it's the first one where they got to use a Steadicam. Um, apparently the BBC was lent the use of a couple of these before they bought them, so it was just kind of a free trial. Um, so the a lot of the scenes where they're running around, um, they're able just to, a camera that's not as bulky and stuff so they can move it and get those low-angle shots. Um, and before, yeah. before I was reading about that, I kind of noticed that when they when they do the scenes of Romana's regeneration, and especially when you've got the really tall version um, incarnation and the, and the doctors looking up at her, um, you see the TARDIS ceiling, and I thought that must be the first time, or one of the few times we see the TARDIS ceiling, because it's shot down to to I guess exacerbate the height difference. 
Um, yeah. Because all the, usually all the behind the scenes stuff you see is just just the walls, uh, no ceiling, uh, just obviously a lighting rig above, and then and then the TARDIS console. Uh, and and in the inside the Dalek city as well, you can see ceilings sometimes when uh, when they're shot quite low. Uh, so I think especially the outside running around bits, it gives a bit more dynamism probably that the camera can move around too. Yeah, I suppose they're starting to sort of move away from the the big heavy cameras that they've had to use for nearly twenty years, and starting to get much more lightweight equipment and. Mm-hmm. Uh, could get the camera easier to get the camera in amongst action and things like that as well. I didn't. I'm not sure if he looked well, but I think the very start of the story. I don't think Tom Baker looks very well. Um, I mean, I know sort of later. Is it for Megalos where he'd been quite unwell and it had made his hair go straight? He'd had to have a perm. Yeah, to, and to get the curly hair back. He's he's really noticeably a lot thinner as well, isn't he? Around that time. Uh, sort of megalos yeah. time, yeah. But um, but yeah, I did I did sort of wonder with that once once it gets to the location work, um, and he looks back to normal. I just found that some of the studio stuff early on, he'd uh, he'd not been well. Ah, really? Uh, just going to say, it was shot out of sequence as well. Uh, well, not it wasn't shot out of sequence. The production schedule meant that this was the third, although it's the first in the season, it was the third story to be to be made. Yeah, because they'd already uh, shot City of Death um, where Tom Baker and Lala Ward had fallen in love, hadn't they? So this was yeah. this was early in their relationship, uh, their, their first flushes and, of romance. Uh, Creature from the Pit had been done as well. Yeah. It was, uh, it's a strange one for them to have decided to bring out on an audio, though, given that it exists. I can understand yeah. Galaxy 4 where it's not a complete story. Yeah. Um, yeah, I wonder, it does it make me wonder how they're selecting them. I mean, in some ways, if they've done they've done Genesis, it's a sensible one to do from that perspective, because it's the next story. Mm-hmm. But um, but yeah, it's not it's not one I would have would have rushed to, into production if I was sort of green lighting them. No, um, yeah, especially alongside Galaxy Four, like you say, where there's only one serving episode. Uh, but last year they did Tomb of the Cybermen and City of Death, which. While they are popular stories, um, you'd probably rather watch the DVD when you can. Because <laughs> uh, yes. they brought CDs out of some of these, but that's kind of different because you can um, you can listen to that on a drive or something. Whereas uh, a record is a bit more sort of limited. You you can you, know, you stay in the room with it on, and it's uh, it's just kind of turning away. Uh, you, you sort of may as well watch it, I guess, if uh, if you want to. Uh, but yeah, I didn't buy the Destiny of the Daleks one, but I bought Galaxy 4, um, and I got the League of Gentlemen live from Record Store Day as well, which um, I thought, because I, I went to see them live, not, not I think they recorded it in London, I went to see it in Edinburgh, I thought, oh great, because I really enjoyed it, love League of Gentlemen, it's a great way to relive it, so I bought that, um, and uh, now they repeat, they're, they're, they're showing, they're going to broadcast it on <laughs> tomorrow night, as it is, so it's oh, right. Sunday night on BBC Two, so... Uh, um, I maybe wouldn't have bought it if I'd realised that. Um, but it is—it's a beautiful thing. The um, the League of one you use it, one of those ones that you open out, and it's like a pop-up book um, with okay. um, Pauline and Mickey pop up out of the middle of it, uh, and then the discs themselves are like Papa Lazarou's face. So uh, it is—it is a really nice thing to uh, to keep. I've listened to the first disc of it, uh, and it is excellent. So uh, 
I, I, I don't regret it too much. <laughs> so, uh, given that they are all fans, I'm surprised that they haven't done more sort of Doctor Who things themselves and League of Gentlemen. Um, I know that uh, obviously Mark Gatiss has written stuff um, and uh, and Rhys Shearsmith was cast as Patrick Troughton for the Adventure in Time and Space. Yeah, so and he's in Sleep No More as well, isn't he? Um, he is, yes. Uh, Steve Pemberton. Yeah, I think all, they've all been in them. Yeah. Uh, Silence in the Library has got Steve Pemberton in it. Yeah, uh, that's it, yeah. Um, does, uh, I, I would have thought they might have I would have thought it would be the kind of thing that would appeal to them to, to pastiche yeah um, yeah because even on um, sort of inside number nine there's, there, there's, there's some things from that era aren't they that uh, they're obviously especially kind of the horror stuff but yeah they're very sort of TV literate about, about stuff like that well thank you very much for joining me today uh, it's been a, a pleasure discussing this story with you well, that's great. Thank you for having me. It's always nice to come and chat. Definitely. Well, thank you. Appreciate you making the time and uh, and rewatching the story. Uh, where can we find you on the internet? Uh, I am on Twitter at at lol seven three. That's l o double l seven three. And I am occasionally with our friend John Beatonby on the Highlanders podcast. We've been having a little uh, sabbatical from that while uh, while John's. Uh, finishing up some studying that he's been doing but we're hoping to be back this summer uh, where we will uh, go back and have a look at Jenny Whitaker's first season excellent great yeah I recommend the Highlanders uh, we might even so. talk about it yeah. <laughs> we might even talk about it and actually mention Doctor Who once or twice uh, <laughs> given our track record of digressions <laughs> but, uh, yeah I, uh, I always recommend the Highlanders it's, uh, it's my favourite Doctor Who podcast so uh, I'll put a link in the okay. show notes to that as well uh, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Trap1 underscore, and you can find all the previous Trap1 podcasts at trap1.podbean.com. Thank you very much for listening. Goodbye. Thank you.